This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week we're going back in time to the early summer of 1940, to a corner of northern France, where British, Belgian and French troops find themselves surrounded by advancing German forces. The soldiers, waiting on the beaches of Dunkirk, look to England for rescue. But time is running out. Well, 80 years on, we're looking back at the events of the Dunkirk evacuation, codenamed Operation Dynamo, which resulted in more than 338,000 Allied troops being rescued. It was the biggest evacuation in military history. And I'm joined on the line by senior properties historian Paul Patterson to talk about it. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here again. Let's start by looking back to the events leading up to the Dunkirk evacuation. Why did France and the Low Countries fall to German forces? And how did so many Allied troops come to be stranded on those beaches in northern France? If we go back a little bit to the start of the war, as far as the British and the French were concerned, which took place in early September of 1939, for about six months, not a great deal happens. But then suddenly, on the 10th of May, the Germans launched their assault against Western Europe. And it took place in a number of attacks, but there were two principal attacks, one of them through northern Belgium and the second one through southern Belgium and northern France. It really took the Allies by surprise, and because of the particular use of German tactics, they actually split the Allied forces into two. A large part were kind of semi-trapped by the southern attack in northern France and Belgium. And then, with the pressure brought on them from the north by the northern attack, gradually this pocket of soldiers, this large pocket of French, Belgian and British soldiers, were kind of trapped by German attacks on both sides and eventually the attacks were so severe and the Allies had to constantly retreat that they were really concentrated in a small pocket around the main channel ports of Calais, Boulogne and Dunkirk. That's how they found themselves in this predicament with their backs to the sea. And this was the British Expeditionary Force? That's correct, yes. A relatively small force, I suppose, something like 350 to 400,000 men in all, had deployed to France in 1939. The French army was much larger, but all in all, if you take the forces on both sides, German and Allied, there were about 2 million soldiers on each side, so it's a, a pretty substantial force of which the British Expeditionary Force formed a part. Why was the German advance so powerful? Was it this blitzkrieg operation? Yes. It was, I suppose, a new developed form of tactic which sought to identify the weakest point or the point around which the enemy defences articulated and by applying maximum force at that particular point and breaking through, the idea was to create chaos and confusion among the enemy such that they were unable to regroup and counterattack and so found themselves attacked on more than one side. That's effectively what Blitzkrieg was about, and it created total confusion in the enemy. 
and ended up in encirclement manoeuvres so that the German forces could surround pockets of the enemy and pick them off one by one, either by destruction or by surrender. And it was facilitated by a really close coordination between air and ground forces, such that the attacks when they came were absolutely concentrated and devastating. It's almost like what they called in the Iraq uh, war, the second Iraq war, shock and awe, I suppose. Yes, shock and awe is a developed form of Blitzkrieg. It's slightly different, but it's it's effectively the same. You're disorientating your enemies such that they can't communicate effectively to mount a counterattack. How long does it take from the invasion of France and the Low Countries to the troops being trapped in that pocket in northern France near Dunkirk? Not very long is the answer. That is the thing that is so surprising and caused so much confusion among the Allied command. I mean, the attack starts on the 10th of May, and by the 19th of May, so nine days later, the idea of a withdrawal from France and Belgium by the British Expeditionary Force is first seriously considered. So it it really is a very short period. So who comes up with the plan to stage a rescue mission? Well, there is a, a kind of emergency meeting in London at the War Office on the 19th where the various heads of the Army Air Force uh, and the Navy and certain politicians assemble to discuss the options for what they can do now that they understand that there's a serious situation in France and Belgium. And at that meeting, command of a possible evacuation, it wasn't entirely agreed that there would be, but one of the options was an evacuation from the channel ports of which they named Calais, Boulogne and Dunkirk. And the natural command for an evacuation of that kind would be a naval officer, senior naval officer, and the nearest one, of course, was Dover. And so Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey, who was the flag officer in charge of the Dover naval base, was named as the person who would plan the operation. Or, as he later put it, he basically said it was not a planned operation, which I suppose it wasn't. It was uh, an extemporization, if you like, uh, an improvisation under very difficult circumstances. Wow, okay. I didn't really appreciate that before. What was the code name? It was Operation Dynamo. There's been lots of theories about why, why it was named that, but in fact, all military and naval operations were given code words. Uh, sometimes there was a reason, but most times there wasn't. And in this case, nobody seems to know why it was called Operation Dynamo, but that was it. I mean, quite appropriate, really. And he was based at Dover, as you say. So is this where the plan unfolded? Yes, indeed. After the 19th of May, Vice Admiral Ramsey and his naval staff, his naval headquarters staff, in the tunnels under Dover Castle, in their headquarters, begin to think how they might organise this. And so they consult with the War Office, an organisation called Movement Control, which would organise the dispersal of the troops once they were landed in England, the Ministry of Shipping, so they could muster an appropriate number of vessels to conduct the evacuation, because the Navy didn't have enough or even appropriate vessels to do that, so they needed personnel carriers, for instance, and merchant ships, and lots of small boats, because they had anticipated that a lot of the troops would be taken off the beaches of northern France and Belgium, for which you needed small boats because the beaches were shallow and shelving, where big ships couldn't get close. But also they did recognise that it was probably impossible to take 
so many soldiers off the beaches uh, and so from the outset they also considered using the port facilities themselves and so some pretty large ships were brought into commission. At Dover Castle, where Admiral Ramsey is based, how many personnel uh, would be working under him at that time? Well, we're not entirely sure, but uh, his headquarters staff before the operation was probably in the order of 40 to 60, but it was rapidly increased because they needed far more people to organise all the transport, both in shipping and in railways and, and buses to get the troops away from the port of Dover and the other places, but also to organise supplies as well. So perhaps 100 to 150 people were involved in the Dover tunnels themselves, but then there's many hundreds of people involved elsewhere at other ports along the south coast, at the other naval bases who were contributing towards the operation, the railway companies, the bus companies. You know, there are many, many hundreds of people involved, of which the few in the Dover tunnels were the coordinating personnel. You mentioned it was a sort of extemporization, a bit of a sort of make-it-up-as-you-go-along kind of operation. Yeah, how long did Admiral Ramsey have then to sort of put his loose plan into operation? They're kind of making plans from the 19th of May, as I said. Mm. Uh, and the operation was given the go-ahead on the evening of the 26th of May. So it's a week, one week, basically, to organise all this. Wow. What was the original plan in terms of how many men they wanted to get off those beaches and back to England? Did they set a target? Obviously, they wanted as many as possible, but realistically, their estimates ranged between 30,000 and an absolute ceiling of 45,000. And I think even then, they considered that would be an enormous success if they achieved that. We'll talk about the eventual figures shortly, of course. But um, over how many days exactly did this evacuation take place? Well, the operation itself began on the evening of the 26th of May, and it ended in the early hours of the 4th of June. So it takes up part of 10 days, but it's actually about nine days in total. But at the same time, one of the things that is sometimes forgotten is that while organizing the evacuation from Dunkirk, they were also trying to organize evacuations from Boulogne and Calais, which were also being attacked by German forces. Uh, and in fact, on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of May, so before Operation Dynamo starts, Admiral Ramsey's staff had organised evacuations from Boulogne uh, to a small extent from Calais. So there were other operations going on at the same time. Mm. So it was even more difficult than we realise. So although it only begins on the 26th, they were very busy before the 26th. So in some respects, um, they were already saving lives, getting men back to England well ahead of time. Do we know how many troops would have been rescued in those early sideline kind of missions? A few thousand only. There were a few thousand from Boulogne. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's, I think it's less than 5,000. And Calais actually held on to the grim death, as it were. So there were only a few hundred rescued from Calais. You talked about Calais there in Boulogne. I imagine there was heavy fire. I presume German planes were coming in, dive-bombing, attacking the troops on, on the beach, machine guns, yeah. troops were running for cover. Uh, can you describe the sort of scenes that might have been taking place both at Calais, Boulogne and Dunkirk during this period? Boulogne and Calais are slightly different because they were smaller operations, I suppose, and they were 
tight defended areas that had to be held. Uh, Dunkirk was slightly different in that it was quite a, a significant area around Dunkirk where a defence had been organised by the retreating British and French forces around a system of canals. So there was a defended perimeter there. But within that perimeter, there was a lot of fighting going on as the Germans tried to penetrate the defences. So tank attacks, there were artillery attacks, dive bombing, high-level bombing, close quarters fighting, absolutely determined attacks and determined defence. Shelling going on all the time. The men were short of food and water. They were obviously in among civilians, so that was an added complication. And Dunkirk itself, by this time, was a wreck. It had been, you know, systematically bombed. It was on fire. There was a big oil terminal nearby which was burning constantly. So it must have been a vision of hell for anybody in there. What other difficulties would they have faced as they waited for rescue, the troops specifically on the Dunkirk beaches? You mentioned the dive bombing and the bombs, obviously. They sound pretty exposed. Yes, it was. Almost like sitting ducks. There were at times, most certainly. There's a lot of confusion going on. Basically, you've got these troops, the fighting troops are manning the perimeter and all sorts of troops are retreating through the perimeter because some are outside it. So they're coming on through. It's kind of not organised, really. They're coming in small units, large units, in dribs and drabs into the town. So they're taking shelter in burnt-out buildings and cellars. They're assembling on the the quayside of the port and they're in the dunes on the beaches. Now, at first, in the first few days, there weren't enough small boats to ferry them from beaches. And so what was tending to happen is the troops were assembling on the beach, often disorganised, waiting for boats to pick them up. There were too few boats, so they had to go back and hide in the dunes or in the town. So some were waiting several days until the operation got fully underway and naval landing parties were dispatched to Dunkirk and organised the troops into regular and disciplined groups to embark. So there was certainly a lot of confusion and as they waited, whether they were in the dunes or the town or waiting in line on the beach or on the quayside, there were frequent attacks, yes, and pretty concentrated attacks at that mainly at first from aircraft, but also later on, as the Germans got closer, from artillery shelling from beyond the defended perimeter. So it would have been a very, very frightening place to have been, considering that some of them were there for several days. It sounds like a very sort of counterintuitive thing for a trained soldier to do, is to sort of hunker down, wait and wait to be rescued, not to go and attack, uh, not to go and defend your perimeter. But do you think that would have been a strange thing for the troops, to sort of be passive in a way? I think it was a mixture. Obviously, troops were used to periods of downtime and boredom, as it were, and then Mm. action. So they were used to that kind of routine. But to be under constant or, you know, fairly frequent attack must have been very difficult. I think the reaction of the troops varied. You know, accounts suggest that the frontline fighting troops were far more disciplined than the support arms, the supply troops, who were perhaps less used to that kind of intense attack and activity. But eventually, the organisation was such, both from the army itself and from the naval landing parties, 
that it was quite disciplined. I mean, there were occasion, occasionally breaks of discipline and, and panic, but by all accounts, veterans tend to say that it was a calm and disciplined affair, which is quite remarkable given the circumstances. While the troops were waiting, obviously, in their mostly defensive sort of mindset, shall we say, what yeah. was the role in the RAF in protecting the skies above the troops? Well, in the period of the operation, uh, Vice Admiral Ramsey had a direct line to fighter command. That was that was given to him at the beginning of the operation. And so he was able to try and coordinate air cover when the maximum lifts of troops were taking place. It obviously didn't always succeed because of varying weather conditions. But what the RAF were trying to do was to provide air support to combat German aircraft who were trying to attack both the soldiers on the beaches and on the on the uh, the quayside, and prevent them bombing ships once they'd embarked. So they were doing their best, but obviously it was a pretty difficult task because they themselves were under constant attack as well. Were there dogfights between you know the likes of the Spitfires and that sort of thing over the channel? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the, I mean the Spitfire saw its first combat action actually over Dunkirk uh, at this time. Yes, and so there were lots of dogfights. There were uh, some complaints from the troops when they got home that they didn't see enough of the RAF. But I think the truth is that they were trying to combat the Luftwaffe a little further inland mm. uh, and, you know, f- fighting them off there. So, uh, you know, I think in retrospect, the RAF did as much as they possibly could under the circumstances. Looking at the maritime operation... Let's look directly at the Royal Navy vessels. How many of those were involved in the rescue? It's complicated, this, because there were Royal Naval fighting vessels and then the vast majority of the the personnel, merchant and civilian vessels that were used in the operation were actually given naval crews. Not exclusively, but most of them. So there was something like 300 Royal Naval Orthodox vessels. And then a total of about 700 British vessels and an overall total of about 930 vessels in total, including French and Belgian, etc., involved in the operation. So just to recap, maybe 300 Royal Naval fighting vessels and over 930 vessels in all involved in the operation. And how many of those survived? How many were attacked and sunk? Of those 933 vessels, something like 236 were lost. That's 25%. It's a huge toll of sunken vessels. I want to concentrate a little bit about this uh, idea of the little ships. How accurate is it that civilians with their own vessels helped in the Dunkirk evacuation? And I'm thinking, obviously, of the Christopher Nolan film from a few years ago, where you have... um, Mark Rylance's character, and I believe it's his son, getting on a ship and then going to France. So how accurate is that? The idea of civilians involved in Operation Dynamo is correct. However, it's fair to say that the whole operation was organised and run by the Royal Navy, and the vast majority of commandeered vessels of all kinds, whether it be merchant ships, passenger vessels, and small cabin cruisers... They were commandeered by the Royal Navy and they were given volunteer crews. And those, those volunteer crews were generally from the Royal Naval Reserve and the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. The number of 
civilians who went and manned their own vessels is actually small. But yes, there were some. Some of them just took upon themselves to go or decided that they would go alongside these Royal Naval volunteer crews. So the vast majority of staff were Royal Navy, Royal Navy Reserve, merchant seamen and a few civilian volunteers. As the troops began leaving Dunkirk, what happened to their vehicles and equipment then? Most of it was left behind. Yeah. And we're talking tens of thousands of pieces of equipment, of tanks and artillery pieces, anti-tank guns, anti-aircraft guns, lorries, troop transports, all that kind of thing. Obviously, in an operation like this, with no heavy lifting equipment really available, they couldn't take them with them. And so during the retreat or when they got to Dunkirk, the vast majority were either destroyed or disabled, or in some cases, simply abandoned. If they were under pressure or under attack, it wasn't always possible to destroy them. However, a few of them were put to an ingenious use, especially lorries and tracked vehicles, which were driven into lines down the beach into the sea, and then planks were laid across the top of them to form makeshift jetties. And the reason for that is that they could increase the number of troops going along these makeshift jetties to board the small vessels, even at low water. And so they could maximise the lift of soldiers at the time. It was, it was a very clever thing to do. And there are some great photographs from the time showing these after the Germans arrived in Dunkirk. So, Paul, we've described quite broadly the picture of what's been going on over this nine to ten day period. You mentioned at the start how many men Admiral Ramsey intended to rescue and then obviously there's a figure that comes at the end but just remind us again what the intention was and then what the eventual result was. The best intelligence estimates were 30 to 40,000. In the event it was over 338,000. Interestingly you know we often talk about the beaches of Dunkirk but there was also the harbour there and in particular there was a structure called the East Mole, which was a breakwater uh, in the outer harbour at Dunkirk. And that was also used during the operation. And in fact, two-thirds of those 338,000 troops were picked up from the East Mole because large ships could go directly alongside it. And the remaining third were picked up from the beaches. That's obviously a vast increase. That is oh, amazing, isn't it? probably one of the biggest overachievements in history, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think there was immense relief and surprise after the operation. You know, Ramsey and his team and everybody involved were themselves amazed and warmly congratulated. There were lots of decorations for outstanding service and bravery. Obviously, a lot of emphasis is placed on how many people were saved, and it's a fantastic result. But do we have any records of how many Allied troops died during the days of the operation? It is hard to tell how many died during all phases of the operation. But what we do know is because there were rough counts going on as soldiers boarded the larger ships before they were taken uh, across the sea to England. And we know that ships that were sunk, i.e. post-embarkation, about 2,000 soldiers lost their lives from ships that were sunk. Mm. There are estimates, fairly good estimates, of how many soldiers were killed and lost during the whole Battle of France, of which this was part. 
and we know that about one in eight of all of the British Expeditionary Force didn't come back either because they were killed, wounded or captured. So that's that's a figure for the Battle of France of about 11,000 soldiers killed, mm. 14,000 wounded and 41,000 missing or taken prisoner from the BEF. Do we know how many British civilians on those little ships trying to aid the rescue efforts might have died? We do know that, yes. We don't know how many civilians actually took part, but it's quite a small figure. But if we take into account the merchant seamen who took part in the operation on their own vessels, then 125 civilians or merchant seamen were killed and 81 wounded, of which only four killed and one wounded were true civilians, as it were, i.e. not seamen of any description. So it's a, you can see that's a relatively small number. It, it's obviously still significant. You know, 125 people killed is, is significant. But in terms of the whole operation, it's a small figure. How does that figure and the stories of those men involved in the operation relate to the language and the phrasing that we get today, Dunkirk spirit, for example? How much yeah. of a role does that play? It's an interesting one, this. I mean... I think a lot of the people involved in the operation left oral testimony and there are, there are a few still alive. And they all describe it as a miracle, which is interesting. And it must have been held to be part of, I guess, when they discovered, you know, how many were brought back. They were probably truly astounded. But it was also cultivated as well, particularly by Winston Churchill, who really need to give the nation some good news after what effectively was a disastrous defeat in Belgium and northern France. And so that idea of a miracle and the Dunkirk spirit was cultivated in the press. But actually, part of me thinks there's something to this. Veterans talk about it. They talk about how they were completely amazed how many people got away. And also by the sheer bravery and enterprise of the naval crews who made it possible. And I think that idea of Dunkirk spirit comes from, from that, you know, the unique qualities of resource and, and resilience in extreme danger, keeping a calm head, which are associated with Britishness. I think that is kind of what the Dunkirk spirit represents. Uh, and that from the mouths of veterans, I think, gives it an added authenticity, if you like. As we zoom out with the sort of benefit of hindsight and history and all this time having passed as well, broadly speaking, what was Operation Dynamo in terms of its significance as a turning point in the war, both from a British and Allied perspective? Well, Operation Dynamo and actually there were two later operations in June because part of the British Expeditionary Force was still in France after Dunkirk and they attempted to help the French stop the German advance south towards Paris. And so, not a lot of people know, but another almost 200,000 Allied troops were rescued from ports in Brittany and western France between the 15th and the 25th of June. So it's even bigger than we realise the number of troops brought back. And that number is really significant because it's effectively the fighting core of the British Army that's rescued. And even though the vast majority of their equipment was lost, left behind, 
these are the men who would regroup, re-equip and fight again in all the subsequent campaigns. So it really gave us a fighting chance to carry on the war. As, so long as the political will was there, which it was, you know, via Winston Churchill and, and his cabinet, to carry on. So although it was a, a major defeat, obviously, for the British and disastrous for the French and the Allied effort as a whole, it laid a foundation upon which to build. I think it's also significant and it showed the absolute supremacy of the Royal Navy at sea. Despite their best efforts, the German Air Force and the German Kriegsmarine were not able to stop the operation taking place. And so the defensive moat of the channel was still there at the end of the operation. And it was left to the Germans to try and wear down the spirit of the British people through aerial attack, which also failed. And so the rescue of those troops and the supremacy of the Royal Navy at the time were very significant elements which enabled the rest of the war to take place. I think it's almost like um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that's the Dunkirk spirit. Would you say I, that's I, right? I think that's true, yes. And I think any veterans that you talk to or oral histories that you might listen to, they bring that out in very large measure. That spirit was present. The vast majority of people involved really got stuck in and dug deep to enable it to happen. Senior Properties historian Paul Patterson, thanks for joining us. Now, back in 2017, English Heritage Members magazine editor Matt Havercroft met former Army signalman and Operation Dynamo veteran Richard Sheen at his home in West Wales. Richard was billeted to Dover, where he used radar to plot enemy aircraft crossing the channel and communicated their positions to anti-aircraft batteries along the coast. To give you an idea of what life was like at Dover Castle at the time of the Dunkirk evacuation, here is an extract of that interview. The evacuation of soldiers from the beaches of Dunkirk in northern France in May 1940 was one of the boldest operations of the Second World War. Fraught with danger and executed using a hastily assembled flotilla of vessels that sailed into untold danger on the other side of the Channel, Operation Dynamo was an audacious mission that Winston Churchill later described as a miracle of deliverance. But away from the heroics in France, depicted in Christopher Nolan's new film Dunkirk, is the other side of the story. The people who oversaw the rescue under the command of Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey, while stationed in a network of tunnels that had been carved into the white cliffs below Dover Castle in Kent. One of those stationed at Dover at the time was Royal Signalman Richard Sheen, now 98, who he went to meet at his home in Pembrokeshire, West Wales, to discover what life was like serving on Operation Dynamo. I'm Benjamin Richard Sheen, member of the Royal Forest Signals, and uh, I was a signalman originally, and then I, I eventually promoted to corporal. I served for six and a half years altogether. Originally, two and a half years in Dover, and then later on I went to Normandy and landed on Juno Beach. Not on D-Day, thank goodness, but uh, shortly after. 
and then eventually um, went right through to France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, and then ended up with the occupying army for six months in Dusseldorf. How did you come to be at Dover Castle? Well, originally the company was stationed in Fort Luton in Chatham. So I worked in the gun control room there for uh, quite a while. When I was doing a month's training in Chatham, uh, we were out one evening and we met two ATS girls. Anyway, um, I got friendly with one of them. We, we started to go to the cinema together occasionally and things like that. At the time, it was um, a very strict rule. There were no fraternisations among the ATS girls and the, the soldiers. <laughs> but uh, we, we kept the thing pretty well undercover. But walking in one dark night, suddenly um, a flashlight came onto us and it was the sergeant major. <laughs> the next morning there was a car waiting for me. I had hardly time to put my army boots on and they whisked me off to Dover. <laughs> and uh, I did hear later that, um, that when the sergeant major went into the cookhouse to get his morning cup of tea and she threw every plate that she could at him. <laughs> anyway, I was posted to Dover and there was a small detachment in Dover Castle and we worked down in the casemates there and uh, there we, um, we worked in the gun control room there and our job there was of course to give information uh, to uh, all the uh, gun sites that were um, operating from, I would say from Manston round to uh, Dungeness, quite a number, and there was a there was a gun site right on the harbour wall. But our main job, of course, was um, uh, giving information of any any enemy aircraft that were in the vicinity, and uh, if they were located anywhere near any of the particular gun sites, we were continually online to them and giving them the information the height, direction, and so forth. So they were virtually on alert as soon as they got the information, ready to engage any aircraft which might be near their site. So what were your first impressions of Dover and the war tunnels? My first impressions uh, of Dover, I always remember it being on cold, very cold November morning. The castle was shrouded in mist and uh, as I walked over the, because of the drawbridge in those days, over the drawbridge into the castle itself and I reported there and then they directed me to a cliff block which was right on the edge of the cliff actually and the gun control room was, was 70 feet below uh, Dover Castle and there was a spiral staircase quite near Cliff Block. When on duty, we, we used the spiral staircase down into the, the tunnel, and that was the casemate tunnel. <laughs> a 
actually the casemate was really uh, designated as a ship, as a matter of fact, because really the, uh, it was a Navy show, really, in Dover Castle in those days, commanded by Vice Admiral Ramsey. And, um, and we were the only army, really, down in the casemates. So, you know, as I say, it was designated a ship, and it was called HMS Casemates. In fact, the amusing thing about it often was if you met a sailor, and once or twice I met sailors, and I might have been going into town, and um, and I know one one chap came up to me once and he said, uh, he said, are you going to shore, mate? You know, here we were in the castle, and he asked me if I was going to shore. Yeah. So, you know, this is how it was really, isn't it? So moving on to Operation Dynamo, can you talk us through the events leading up to it and what the atmosphere was like at the time? Well, when the Germans first took over, uh, you know, they actually had an easy run through the coast and consequently our army were trapped in Dunkirk. 400,000 men there, virtually. And I always remember the evening before uh, we, I happened to be with a couple of the chaps walking along the the front of Dover. And it was a very quiet, peaceful sort of evening. The sea was like a mill pond. And we could literally hear the battle going on. You could hear the explosions. You could hear the uh, shells being fired. It was amazing, really. It was quite eerie, in a way. The problem was, uh, in Dunkirk, there was only a small jetty, and where the, the battleships you know, been, were able to pull up at the jetty, this was the beginning. They were able to get some of the men uh, off the beach by the jetty. But obviously, being the large ships, they couldn't get into the beach. So the uh, a sort of um, a signal went out to, you know, uh, all these little um, fishing villages and and wherever was possible, where where somebody got a, a boat which was you know seaworthy to get across the channel. Well, the, the few days after, I could hear quite a lot of noise in the harbour. And I got up to look out the window, and the whole harbour was full of little ships. And there were destroyers weaving them around and giving instructions. There was quite a lot of noise going on. But it was almost like magic. I'd left the harbour off to something more. I wouldn't like to have described. And they were manned by elderly men, boys, things like this. Quite astonishing, really. But at least they were able to get onto the beaches and transport the soldiers onto the battleships or whatever larger ships were available. But of course, all the time they were being dive-bombed and shelled and goodness knows what else. That was the situation, really. And, of course, in the gun control room, we were very busy. Um, our job was to make sure 
uh, that we keep in a good lookout for any enemy aircraft which were approaching any of the gun sites. And so things were quite, you know, hectic. Um, all the sort of personnel in the castle were asked to volunteer and, and go down to the harbour to help the soldiers off the ships as they were coming in. And, um, and I spent quite a bit of time down there, went off duty, and of course the situation wasn't very, um, very nice really, because, you know, some of them were quite happy to be home, obviously, uh, but there were others on stretchers, others being carried in, all without their rifles, and, and of course all our arms had been left behind. So, you know, it was virtually a defeated army. But what was the amazing thing about it was that I know they reckon one out of four was left behind, but in all they rescued 288,000 or 388,000 soldiers from the beaches by these small ships and the destroyers what happened to the rescued soldiers when they arrived in Dover? I understood that Churchill wanted to get them away as soon as possible. So uh, in those days, they were able to bring um, the trains up onto the, um, I think it was the Admiralty Pier, I'm not sure, I think it was. So they were off the ships, straight on the trains and away. Another train would come in, another load would go out, and, and that's how it was as quick as that, because they were afraid that, you know, as the Germans didn't get them in Dunkirk, they'd get them in Dover or Folkestone or somewhere like that, you know. So they were, the idea was to get the soldiers away as, as quickly as possible. And this is what we were helping to do, really. So can you describe what happened in the aftermath of Operation Dynamo? You know, there was this lull, and we more or less doubled shifts, things like this, and... And then, of course, the Battle of Britain started, and it was like a war zone there. I mean, you won't believe it, but it was like a film. There were dogfights going on, airplanes were coming down in the sea, and you had to be there to believe it, really. There were lots of things happening as well, you know. One of the main things, though, they were trying to clear the harbour of any any ships, the, the shelling had got, got the range, and they could pepper the, the harbour, you know, whenever they wanted to. And we had a lot of heavy shelling going on there all the time. And being right on the edge of the cliff, you know, you can imagine it didn't, it wasn't too healthy, especially when the these Yonkers 87s used to come and dive-bomb the, the harbour. And they literally used to go past our window you could see this big aeroplane, literally, because we were virtually, I suppose, uh, they're about 500 feet up, and there was a submarine basin, which they were after, just below in the harbour, and they were trying to bomb that. And so the, these dive bombers would be flying straight past the window, and you can imagine you know, going past the window... I mean, we used to dive under the bed, but I mean, what would that do if they'd, uh, if they'd put one on us? We don't know. No. 
But anyway, we were lucky we got away with it. But uh, that's how it was. And because of the dive bombing of the harbour, um, the RAF um, started putting up barrage balloons and they used to attach them to the boys in the harbour. And there were 22 of them. And then the Germans used to have a lot of fun. They would come over, the fighters would come over and start shooting all the balloons down. And they were all coming down in flames, you know. It was, and everybody in the harbour were having pot shots at them, you know. There were tracer bullets going up everywhere. Somehow or other they got away with it. As soon as the balloons went up, the RAF would put another load up and they'd come over and shoot that lot down. But this particular evening, I remember, um, there was one balloon left and this one saucy devil, this German fighter, it was MO109, I think, came shooting along to shoot it down. So everything in the harbour let loose, you know, and everybody was having a go at it. And uh, anyway, he shot the balloon down and then he made out that he'd been hit and he sort of did a falling leaf sort of thing down and he got to a sea level, flattened out, shot back across uh, to France. You know, saucy devil, you know. And I bet they had a good old laugh when they got over there, you know, the, the German airmen. <laughs> How do you think Operation Dynamo should be remembered by people today? Operation Dynamo was, I think, one of the main epics of the war. And I think it was certainly, um, certainly a turning point um, because without that army uh, that was saved... You know, we were virtually um, devoid of, of of any sort of defence, really. I think they ought to keep sort of uh, bringing it to the public's notice so it's not forgotten like lots of things are. They can be easily forgotten. But I, I think young people should be really kept aware of it, part of our history, really. And I think we mustn't lose side of it. For more information about Operation Dynamo or to plan a visit to Dover Castle, go to www.english-heritage.org.uk forward slash Dover. A very moving interview and some wonderful stories there. Sadly, Richard passed away in 2019 at the age of 99, and this episode is dedicated to him and his family. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about how Operation Dynamo was organised from Dover Castle, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we're investigating Wellington's women and a different side to the hero of Waterloo. If he had married someone that he'd completely adored and been in love with, would he have had the same success in his military career? It's an interesting thing I often ponder. Thanks for listening. See you next time.